Dit is Paprika. DC Radio. Live at the Green Tech. Here we are with Nick Eastley, the CEO of Free Sea Consulting. Nick, it's a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Couldn't uh, have a better afternoon here in Amsterdam. Perfect. Sounds good. I think for both of us, it's been a long time since we've been to the Netherlands. A couple years. Normally, it would be every few months for the BVs we have here, or like different vendors relationships. But uh, yeah, coronavirus kind of put a kink into that, you could say. Exactly, exactly. So I'm happy to be here. You're happy to be here. Equally. But let's let's start with that reasoning. Why why would you come to the Netherlands? But before we go there, tell us something about yourself. Who's Nick Easley? Well, yeah, high-level background. Um, Nick Easley. I'm uh, CEO, managing director of 3C and Multiverse Capital. Uh, started in medical cannabis in Colorado about 16 years ago, mm-hmm. and after the military got hurt, came to Colorado, found medical cannabis, started working in that those companies. Those first licenses have now gone from Colorado to over 37 states of clients and investments, and now working in about 25 countries. All cannabis. So, what exactly does that mean? Because 37 states, 25 countries. You started 16 years ago from scratch. From scratch, no business experience, just as uh, a military crypto linguist and uh, a biologist. Wow. So let's try to work this out. 37 states, you say. That means that in 37 states is now kind of legal to a certain extent. Well, in 37 states, we have business operations. Right. There's 50 states. 47 have some sort of medical cannabis law. Some of them really suck, but right. most of them are pretty good. And in the United States, then 19 states have legal adult use cannabis. So almost 20% of America, it's legal for for cannabis. I'm sorry, almost 40% of America is legal right. for cannabis and more and more. So each state's like a little country. It has its own rules, laws, regulations that have to be navigated. One state might have a thousand cultivators. One state might have five. So we really value and look at markets of how to start the businesses, create sustainable production companies, get medicine to patients, scale those companies and like get them to the point where they can actually be generating revenue and impact. Yeah. So some 20% is well organized right now, you would say. Um, for, for people who don't live in the US, it's sometimes kind of, kind of difficult to understand how exactly it works. I mean, when you fly in with anything related to cannabis on a federal level, when you cross customs, you're screwed. Completely, you go to jail. It's completely illegal. So it, you, know, you could think about it like, let's say, you know, in Europe, you know, France. It'd be like, in Paris, legal cannabis exists, yeah. but in Normandy, you'll go to prison. Right. But you're like, how does that work? So in the United States and international, never can confuse medical cannabis and recreational. Both are good and we work with both. But medical is based on a UN clause that allows compassionate use. So before something becomes a standardized API, like active pharmaceutical ingredient, and goes through four steps of clinical trials and about a billion dollars of testing to make a pharmaceutical drug, a standardized medicine, If there's some condition and some new thing that can help it that doesn't actually cause more harm, you can have a compassionate program. Right. So California used that law in 1996 to start a medical cannabis program, the first in the U.S. Internationally, it's the same. Each country can choose to allow medical cannabis, but international requires doctor's prescriptions versus in Canada or in America where it's a doctor makes a recommendation. Right. But we've always started, like, you do medical cannabis, it goes well, people understand it, you alleviate patient suffering, creates jobs and economy, and then with adult use, why keep putting minorities and people in jail? Why not make taxes and regulations of this so it's safe, affordable, because people are already using these products even though it's not legal. Right, right. 
So what do you expect? I mean, this year uh, the map of the United States turned blue again. There's Biden, who is uh, our new president. What does that imply? Do you think within his term things will change on a federal level? I, I, I sadly don't, even though most people are very, very optimistic. So, you know, pretty much having anyone in the White House other than who he had the last four years is better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to get political, but wow. Um, you know, Biden was like vice president with Obama, and under Obama we had James Cole as the Attorney General of the United States. And James Cole, he wrote this memo, and it had eight points, and he's like, if you're a medical cannabis state, and you follow these eight rules, like don't allow it to go over state lines, prevent diversion, stop access to minors, we won't mess with you. But then Trump's Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, ripped that up, and he said, that's garbage, we're gonna, we're gonna come after you. Right. Nothing happened. And then with the Biden administration now, there are some, the Morac, the CARE Act, there's uh, Schumer's bill, all these different policies to regulate, but the United States being a member of the United Nations, and under the 1961 Single Treaty Convention on Psychotropic Substances, which we're all members in about 190 countries are members, the Commission for Narcotics Drugs this last December rescheduled cannabis internationally. And what that means is all member nations need to amend their controlled substances policies to match the UN's, which currently about 180 countries are in violation of, including the US. Right. So Biden has a lot on his plate. There's a lot of politics going on. But we're already going to do over 30 billion in revenue this year in the United States. So let's rephrase. You said 30 billion in revenues. Um, yeah, the United States should be between 30 and 35 billion in revenue from medical and adult use cannabis. Canada will probably be about 3 billion, and the rest of the world will be about 1 billion, and that's in US dollars for 2021. So that's 2021, and uh, I mean, that so much has happened. I mean, we've had COVID, we've, 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 it feels like we lost one and a half year, but we haven't. I mean, a lot of things have developed, but in the meantime, like two years ago, there was like the big five in the world of medicinal cannabis in North America. They don't exist anymore, do they? Well, not as the big five. What, what, what happened? Just, just. Well, there was a couple things. You know, coronavirus is one part of that. But in the United States, since we're federally illegal, we're not allowed to like list on the public markets. Mm-hmm. Now, in Canada, on their stock exchanges, the TSX and the CSE, since it was legal for medical, they were allowed to do that, and then also legal for recreational. So they were able to raise copious amounts of capital, but then they invested thinking that Canada was going to be the world leader of producing. It's very cold and dark there and expensive. So then they started investing into these assets all over the world. But many of those international, it's a long-term process, country by country, doctor education. So huge revenues didn't return, so then their stocks didn't do super well. And they didn't invest into America early enough. Right. And that's why even though we're federally illegal, we're following state-by-state laws, large companies like ours or other MSOs, Green Thumb, uh, Cresco, TrueLeave, CuraLeaf, Air, well, like, we're all of developing and raising capital on Canadian exchanges to reinvest into America where the next big where the revenue is happening and then from that we're reinvesting into other countries other states so we did it the opposite of those big five right like raise it in Canada do Canada and the world we're like raise it in Canada do it in America and then fund the rest of the yeah. world and yeah. control it so coronavirus actually showed cannabis has been doubling year over year we had our largest stage of growth during coronavirus that people were at home a lot of high stress, a lot of high anxiety, alcohol consumption went way up, so did cannabis. 
And when many of the states that had legal cannabis, a year ago, I had 10 states legal for recreational. In one year, I doubled the amount of states because when their hotels weren't full, baseball stadiums, restaurants, bars, that's where there's huge revenue from taxes. Right. And when those weren't available, but cannabis dispensaries stayed open and they were still making tax revenue from that and those jobs, they thought, we want that too. Or my neighbor in Illinois is doing this and they're making 300 million in sales or 200 million sales a month. They're like, and of that, 30 million is my people from my state going there. We don't want to lose that tax revenue. So tax revenue has been the biggest driver. And by being deemed essential in the United States and being able to stay open to provide medicine for patients, there's only one state that didn't allow that, like in Massachusetts for adult use, and they lost about a billion, billion and a half dollars of revenue. But then people didn't come up there for medical or for recreational tourism. So let's just try to, uh, what you just mentioned, if we think about the future, some two years from now, and we are making 35 billion US dollars only in North America right now. In the United States. In, not the, just, in yeah. the United States. <laughs> where will, well, let's just stick to the United States for a second. Well, where will we be? And not just money-wise, but how will the, that market develop in the next? Let's just stick to two years. So in the next two years, more of these states that just legalized are going through their regulatory campaigns and their license selection, like who's going to actually get to grow or sell. That can go through lawsuits and delays and chaos, but in two years, many of those businesses will have been started and operational, because you have to grow a plant, either from a seed or a clone, and process it, harvest it, package it, have a retail chain. And that's where, within two years, you'll probably see the United States, let's just say by 2025, doing 70 to 80 billion in US dollar revenue a year. Right. And that's just sales of products, plant, flour, oil, cookies, brownies. Yeah. When you think of all the other money. But you're, you're talking about the market here, not, well, that's not production. The, no, that's the revenue, like the total revenue from sales. Right. But all the other industry that goes with that, the greenhouse construction, mm -hmm. the lights, the lawyers, the consultants, the packaging, all of that, for every dollar of cannabis, there's about $5 of other economy created. Yeah. So that's when we're getting close to half a trillion of industry. Yeah. Yeah. In one year in America. So amazing figure. Amazing yeah. figures. But you, you, you mentioned twenty twenty five, but I mean cannabis is being legalized in more countries than just uh, North American states. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's being legalized in Colombia, in, in Mexico. For, for medical. Uh, I live in Costa Rica for medical purposes, mm -hmm. of course. Um, what do you expect from that? I mean, you already mentioned that Canada, maybe the climate is too harsh. It's uh, a horrible place to do large-scale massive exactly, production but, for but, the world. But thinking about the future, how is the U.S. climate compared to, let's say, let's just say the Colombian climate? Well, climate is one factor. They're, like So internationally, those laws are under the U.N. Compassionate Program. Countries are making programs country by country. The Netherlands and Germany have really been leaders in that for allowing like imports of flour from other places or giving production licenses. But that's all at like GXP standards, GACP, Good Agricultural Collection Practices, or GMP. So now producing those standards matters, but when I put my capitalist hat on and I think, okay, it's not just climate or vectors, agricultural vectors, which most venture capitalists wouldn't know what that means, but I think, what are the rules and regulations of that country and what do they allow? How corrupt or bad is it? What's the climate, temperature, airflow, humidity, frost-free days, amount of sun hours per year? 
what's the cost of labor and production, what are the taxes there, what tax treaties exist between that country and my target offtake markets. And only when I put those maps over each other, I can see where in the world is going to be best in leaders. And that's why we've really invested heavily into Colombia, Paraguay, Uruguay, potentially Peru, some of the other countries, but also being a pharmaceutical leading country like a South Africa, a Portugal, that's where there's opportunities. So world leaders of massive production long term, it's not going to be in the United States, it's not going to be in Europe, even though we started these programs. Labor's too expensive, tax is too expensive, climate not that great. Colombia, Ukraine, Portugal, so like a lot of these countries that need opportunity that can also still produce its standards. If I'm making the same quality product for a tenth of the cost, <laughs> my products are going to be the ones that get to market. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but, but we've got like 25 minutes for this podcast, and obviously everybody's eager to understand what's going on, including myself. I mean, what's going on in the world? What will the future look like? But let's go back to you for a second. You just mentioned that you've been investing in Colombia, in Uruguay, Paraguay. What exactly is it that your company does in this world of additional cannabis? Just like a good American, I would be like, well, depending on which company I'm talking about, because right. companies are, in our laws <laughs> are like people, and they get to do their own thing. So, you know, 3C Consulting, our main thing is helping people navigate licensing and regulations and compliance to be able to get the piece of paper to then raise capital, build buildings, and start production. You know, with Multiverse Capital, we have hundreds of different investment opportunities that most investors don't see. So what we do is we raise capital from limited partners, from family offices, high net worth individuals, and we select and we manage and place that capital and reinvest for them, just like a traditional hedge fund or private equity or venture right. fund. Because they, when they go out looking for investments, everything's shiny and attractive. And it's very hard to say, like, is this legal? Is this scalable? Is this bona fide? And after 16 years of experience and you know, winning over 2,000 cannabis licenses around the world, we can look at some very quick and say garbage or not. We believe in the team. We can help them grow, how to improve cultivation or processing, consumer experience, and then invest strategically into the growth of that company. Wow. 2,000 licenses around the globe. Yes, sir. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. You were talking about 25 different countries erected? Uh, directly, we've worked in more than that. I've been to over 61 countries for cannabis, uh -huh. um, either educating governments, um, doing you know, talks, doing doctor education programs. But country by country, they're starting to change and really being involved at the Commission for Narcotics Drugs level, International Narcotics Control Board, the UN, the World Health Organization. They're the ones that when they start to change their laws, countries follow, but then you'll have Switzerland with a pilot program, or like the weed experiment here in the Netherlands, where uh -huh. finally being able to produce coffee house cannabis in the Netherlands for the Netherlands versus where does that cannabis come from that's being sold in coffee houses? Is it safe? Did it create illicit market crime? Was it taxed and regulated? Did the Dutch government make any money off of that? No. They didn't make a single euro, so why not tax it, regulate it, make it safe, and just like in Colorado, regulate marijuana like alcohol in 2012. Right. Steve Fox, a lot of the pioneers, when we put that together, it was the first time that we used tax revenue as the incentive for governments to legalize. And then there's the social justice, where America's a police state. After three months playing around and working all over Europe, I'm like, I think I've seen four police officers. Right. Like, you know, it's very different yeah. in America. But the private prison industry there, you know, with over a million drug crimes for cannabis, of which about 80 to 90% are from African-Americans or Latinos, mm -hmm. even though all people use cannabis, they just go after that community more 
for more people to be in jail to make money off of because our prisons, many of them are private in America. Yeah. So our, the biggest people that hate legal cannabis in America are the private prison companies. Sure. So not only in, you know, by adopting floricultural techniques from like companies like Green Tech, a big, very, because we're floriculture, but when you also think about the social justice we get to work on, getting people access to medicine, being able to like look at plant medicine again instead of thinking, I just need a pill to give me this cure and only pharma, getting young people interested in agriculture again, like cannabis, it's a revolutionary moment for us, like for medicine, for health, for hemp, for paper, for textiles, for future protein sources that it's just such an honor to work with this plant and caretake this plant for what we do as businesses, but we have to do it in a very professional, compliant way. Those are the only ways that this industry works. So it's you know going from like cutting off the dreadlocks and not wanting to like keep records because that was a paper trail to now being like a very compliant company and like you know we wear suits, we talk with investment bankers, we deal with regulations, we love paying taxes. It's all about legal and compliance to do what we do. Yeah, it's, it's extremely interesting to see. I organized um, uh, master courses for medicinal cannabis for some four years now. Of course, not in the last two years. But you see it changing. I mean, it's not about the suits. It, it is about the suits. It's about two worlds merging. I mean, I represent the world of horticulture on this table. You represent the world of medicinal cannabis. And we can just have a normal conversation, which wouldn't have been feasible some 10 years ago because we just yeah. wouldn't understand each other. We, we need both sides. It's kind of like what I did in the military. I was a translator, yeah. a cryptolinguist. And you have to know the, you know the purpose and the goals of each audience. And then, like, how do we actually, our mission is, like, get capital to the cannabis companies that are going to change the world. Right. Instead of just me being Aurora or Canopy myself, I've made way more impact with thousands of clients and partners by actually sharing and doing what we know. So right now, it's, um, yeah, it's being able to walk between the worlds of, I'd rather be barefoot walking around the farm, working with the plants, but then also, like, that impact wouldn't happen. It takes all these pieces to reduce pesticide use, water usage, you know, increased safety standards to, to make it all happen. For you as a person, for you as a CEO of uh, an amazing company, what are the biggest challenges for the next couple of years? Well, coronavirus for everything. It, it changed how we marketed, how we branded, how we had staff travel, how we dealt with clients. The, we were already a pretty remote company, but we closed seven or eight different offices. Yeah. There just wasn't the need for like that physical part. So one of the biggest changes, I think, for our com company and many industries now, is how to incentivize and motivate people, even though the world's changed. And like, well, and it's kind of good. We're never going to go back to normal. Like we're creating this new world, but how to plan for that to survive today and for five years or for ten years? Being mindful of costs. We were on the verge of massive globalization, and then we had to kind of like retract back into America. So. Navigating this new time and keeping you know, both patients, investors, regulators educated on these new changes because so much went online through consumptive patterns that even in the United States we think you know, until federal legalization we will not have Amazons or like Uber Eats of cannabis yet. But like eventually consumers are going to be wanting those sorts of like easy convenience. Right. How do we do that and then how do we establish these new countries? like? It was very hard doing hostile takeovers in countries we couldn't even fly into yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or mergers and acquisitions. So navigating that new normal and getting the industry to realize this is floriculture, yeah. this is consumer packaged goods, and there's a big difference between like medical compassionate use and pharmaceutical standard medicine. Yeah. And we work in both of those fields, but most companies, you're either one or the other, you're very rarely both. 
but just keeping people still motivated, like for the mission, for the vision, when the whole world was decaying in front of their eyes. That's still like my biggest job as, you know, as CEO, you know, it's really keeping people motivated and inspired. I want to pick out one one thing of what you just mentioned, navigating in, in times of COVID. If you navigate, uh, there's a dot on the horizon, you're aiming it. In, in, in my world, the world of flowers, the world of uh, uh, greenhouse vegetables, it's, it's, it's an established sector. We do have our dot on the horizon, we navigate, we go a bit to the left, a bit to the right. But until the day of today, it's difficult for me to understand how an entrepreneur like you puts his dot on the horizon. What's your dot on the horizon? The, the great thing is diversification. So it's not just like hedging here, but it's like I own medical cannabis companies, recreational cannabis companies, hemp companies making wood composites. You know, if one sector we get closed down, it doesn't matter. But we've been doing this now for well over a decade. They haven't come and knocked on any of our doors or the tens of thousands of other licenses. Right. If you do things compliantly, you don't get into corruption yeah. and madness. So, you know, being able to navigate that for me now is, you know, I won't go into an investment unless I know the exit strategy. But personally, for this industry, until medical cannabis, recreational cannabis are legal where the people want it, and we're able to be disruptive in the industries of cotton, timber, biotech, phytoplastics, protein sources for a growing population, you know, my work will never be done. So my navigation, it's it's kind of like our logo. It has like kind of like a little compass. It's right. legal, like by any means necessary, let's get this legal and do it right because future generations need this. Yeah. And it was a past generation of greed that caused us to be illegal in the first place. Exactly. So how do we create a new industry responsibly that's not just a bunch of rich old white guys right. controlling everything like everything else? Like this is a new yeah. chance for women businesses, minority businesses, small and large, to create an ecosystem. So that, well, that's my main point. That kind of brings me to the theme of this green tech, and that's happy food, healthy flowers. We gotta be happy, we gotta stop thinking about just money, profits, but we gotta think about ourselves, we gotta feed ourselves, we gotta make sure that we are happy, basically. How does everything you do um, connect to that theme? Happy food, healthy flowers. Well, and you know, we do food from cannabis, like uh, not just like infused products or hemp seeds, but uh, you know, th there's a lot there. But I think like happy flowers, happy medicine, or, because you know we're not doing tomatoes, but that all came as a flower too that got yeah. pollinated. We try to be unpollinated from cannabis since <laughs> yeah, yeah. always. So, you know, my biggest driver to get into this years ago was when I saw how my caregiver actually grew my medicine in Colorado and, and the dangerous pesticides on his shelf and realized there was no knowledge there. So, you know, by doing pro bono work for the Department of Agriculture, talking about different pesticide regulations, it was like, how do we make sure this is safe? And then my big first projects in Colorado in 2008 and 9 with very large commercial greenhouses, we were producing for about a fifth of the cost. So. I'm definitely like from Vandana Shiva's kind of school of thought of like people plan a profit. You cannot steal from one sector to make profit or have like little slave kids make something for you all cheap or you can sell it and make more money. It's like you have to enrich all sectors, people, environment, and then your profit sustainable. Now versus most, you know, buzzwords of like ESG governance, like environmental social governance, like that's mostly to make people feel good about how they made their other money. Every theme of our companies and what we do from educating the vendors, starting companies or growing cannabis, it all involves looking at every aspect of our supply chain, from our packaging, recycling, our staff training, all the way down to the workforce and how people work together and if it's safe and 
it, it costs a little bit more money to do things right, but when you have the high margins that we do in cannabis, you can afford to do what's right. And then in doing so, put the bad companies out of business, take market share, and then ingrain that into the ethos of the company so that when it exits or when it goes public, like that revolutionary kind of hippy-dippy, it's built into the framework of the company. So no matter, even if Philip Morris or British and American Tobacco <laughs> buys it, they just bought a hippie stepchild that's always going to be a hippie stepchild and very profitable for them. But then change the world and how we're growing, ask less to the planet, and be responsible for the people that are consuming this product. Nick Easley, it was a great pleasure to interview you. Uh, I'm quite sure that we will see more of each other in the near future. Absolutely. Sir. I wish you a great green take the next couple of days. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Sure. Thank, Thank you, you very down. much.